recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degani here on TalkShoe. Today is Friday, May 18th, 2012. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I have a few things to mention. Um, Cheryl Watt, I, I mean, she's still in our prayer. She's still battling her cancer, and, and she's had her stitches, stitches out, and, and she appears to be doing well after her um, after her recent surgery. And, and um, I, I hope that you all keep her in your prayers. I, I mean, especially if you know Cheryl. Cammie Sue, a good dear friend from, from Alabama, has broke her foot, and... and um, She's in a cast, but but and Cammy is a trooper and she'll do just fine. But Betty Carr in in um, Britain, she she's elderly. She's eighty something years old. I won't tell on her too much. And, and um, she fell on a bus yesterday and broke her leg. So so it's just um, I, I don't know. It's one thing after another. And Betty was the um, she, she participated in a great number of the Euro forums that I did. Um, on the chat server at Christogenia, and, and she's in our prayers as well. Tonight I'm going to begin a presentation of the Gospel of Luke. Um, if, for those of you who have been um, talking to me steadily, you'll, you'll know that I'm, I'm going on a road trip in two weeks. I will continue, and, and I'll be gone for a good five or six weeks. I will continue to do my programs as scheduled every Friday and Saturday night. And Luke will get me through my road trip, right? And that's at least for the Friday night programs. And, and I'm not going to dilute my content, God willing, because I'm on the road. I hope to keep up whatever quality I, I offer now I hope to maintain, right? I'm not saying it's all that, but I'm going to hope to be consistent anyway. Let's put it that way. So tonight we start with the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 1, Part 1. In order to discuss Luke, and, and we're not going to get too far into Luke tonight because I have a long introduction. In order to discuss Luke and his relationship to Paul, this is important to understand even before we embark on Luke. And, and and his importance in preserving the gospel. It may be better to quote from Irenaeus in order to show the attitudes of the most early Christian writers. And, and you know, I could I could recap this and rewrite it and and um, put it in my own words. It's better to quote Irenaeus and and to cite my sources, and, and that's better better scholarly practice, I believe. It might be a little stuffier, it might be a little drier, but but um, it's important that these early Christian writers and their attitudes are displayed to some degree. Not that they are perfect, and, and they did get, that they had very universalist language that can be mistaken for modern universalism if we're not careful about the context in which the world was set at the time. When, um, when they used that term world, they surely didn't mean anything beyond the, the, um, the Greco-Roman paradigm. And that's, you know, it's real easy to read these ancients and, and to get everything all fudged up because of 
the way we've learned the meanings and definitions of words today. It really is. So it may be better to quote Irenaeus in order to show the attitudes of the most early Christian writers whose, atti whose attitudes concerning Luke, Irenaeus represents rather well. Irenaeus was the bishop of Lugdunum in Gaul, which is present-day Leon's, I'm probably butchering that, that, that pronunciation, it's present-day Leon or Leon's in France. Irenaeus died circa 202 AD, and his most famous work, Against Heresies, is generally esteemed to have been written about 180 AD. For nearly, well, which is nearly 150 years after the crucifixion and 85 years after the Apostle John wrote down the vision of the Revelation. The name Irenaeus means peaceful in Greek. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was in turn said to be a disciple of the Apostle John himself. Now that was possible. I know it's a long stretch of time, 85 years and, and, and from the time John wrote the Revelation to the time that Irenaeus published Against Heresies is a long time. However, Polycarp had the good fortune of being a disciple of John's at a very young age and himself living to a very old age. Polycarp was um, alive from circa 65 A.D. to 155 A.D., and, and Irenaeus was of a fortune to have known Polycarp early in his life. So, so these, there aren't very many um, generations between John and Irenaeus in that regard, right? There's only Polycarp who lived a long time. This is from Irenaeus Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapters 14 and 15. There's a few interesting things here that I, I, I felt should be brought out and are important to an introduction to both Luke and the letters of Paul, which I hope to be doing um, shortly after I, I, I um, and, and covering at great length shortly after I present Luke and Acts in in in, in the um, the Friday night programs coming up these next six or eight months, right? The subtitle of Book Three, Chapter of Book Three, Chapter Fourteen, in Irenaeus's Against Heresies, is that if Paul had known any mysteries unrevealed to the other apostles, and, and we'll learn the importance of this soon, Luke, his constant companion and fellow traveler, could not have been ignorant of them. Neither could the truth have possibly lain hid from him, through whom alone we learn many and most important particulars of the gospel history. And I quote, but that this Luke was inseparable from Paul and his fellow laborer in the gospel, he himself clearly evinces, not as a matter of boasting, but is bound to do so by the truth itself. For he says that when Barnabas and John, who was called Mark, had parted company from Paul and sailed to Cyprus, quote, we came to Troas, unquote. And when Paul had beheld in a dream, a man of Macedonia, saying, Come into Macedonia, Paul, and help us immediately, he says. We endeavored to go into Macedonia, understanding what the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. 
Therefore, sailing from Troas, Troas is the ancient land where Troy used to be situated before it was destroyed. It was the northwest corner of Anatolia. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we directed our ship's course towards Samothrakia, which was an island off the coast in, in, the, in the northern part of the sea. Reading these things in Irenaeus, we see a corroboration of the accounts of Luke's book of Acts from the earliest times. And then he carefully indicates all the rest of their journey as far as Philippi and how they delivered their first address. For sitting down, he says, we spoke unto the woman who had assembled. Irenaeus is quoting Acts chapter 16, verse 13. And certain believed, even a great many. And again does he say, but we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to Troas, where we abode seven days. And all the remaining details of his course with Paul he recounts indicating with all diligence both places and cities and number of days until they went up to Jerusalem and what befell Paul there, how he was sent to Rome in bonds, the name of the centurion who took him in charge and the signs of the ships. In other words, the names that were on the ships which Paul sailed to Rome on and how they made shipwreck and the island upon which they escaped, and how they received the kindness there, Paul healing the chief man of that island, and how they sailed from there to Puteoli, and from that arrived at Rome, and for what period they sojourned at Rome. As Luke was present in all these occurrences, that's why Irenaeus is quoting so, so, so extantly from the book of Acts, was to show that Luke was present during all these all of these events, right? I mean, they didn't have chapter and verses to refer to at this time. They actually took the time to repeat all of this, and, and that, that's the length that they went to to make their points. Paul himself also declared also in his epistle, saying, Demas hath forsaken me and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me showing that Luke was with Paul for all this time. He quotes 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 to 11. From this he shows, and these are still the words of Irenaeus, from this he shows that he was always attached to and inseparable from him. And again he says in the epistle to the Colossians, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. That's Colossians 4.14. But surely if Luke, who always preached in company with Paul, and is called by him, the beloved, and with him performed the work of an evangelist and was entrusted to hand down to us a gospel, learns nothing different from him, meaning from Paul, as he had been pointed out from his, as he has been pointed out from his words, how can these men who were never attached to Paul boast that they have learned hidden and unspeakable mysteries? Irenaeus in this chapter is addressing the Marcionites, the followers of Marcion, as he explains in the chapter previous to this one. The Marcionites, out of all the gospel, out of all of the gospel accounts in various gospels, the Marcionites esteemed only those writings associated with Paul. They discarded everything else. They were at the other end of the spectrum from the Judaizers who sought to discredit Paul, and that's part of my reason here for citing Irenaeus, is to show that, to show that there were people on one wing of Christianity who only accepted Paul, 
And the opposite extreme were the Judaizers who rejected Paul. Paul himself would not have approved of the Marcionites, who evidently claimed, according to Irenaeus here, to have learned secrets from Paul, which Paul supposedly transmitted only to them. Here, Irenaeus disputes the claim on the basis that Luke, Paul's closest companion, which is what he's setting out to prove here, displayed no knowledge of any of those things. If Luke had withheld those things, that would have been contrary to Luke's stated purpose when he wrote his accounts. Therefore, the Marcionites must be liars, and Irenaeus presents a good argument in order to prove that they are liars, because they claimed to have learned secret knowledge from Paul, which nobody else learned, and they rejected all of the other Christian writers and the rest of Scripture. To continue with Irenaeus, chapter 14, or book 14, part 2, I'm sorry, this is chapter 14, part 2, this is book 3 of Against Heresies. But then Paul taught with simplicity what he knew, not only to those who were employed with him, in, in other words, working together with him, not employed by him, but to those that heard him, he does himself make manifest. For when the bishops and presbyters who came from Ephesus and the other cities adjoining had assembled in Miletus, since he was himself hastening to Jerusalem to observe the Pentecost, he's talking about Acts chapter 20, right, and the events that we could read there, after testifying many things to them and declaring what must happen to him at Jerusalem, he added, I know that you shall see my face no more. Therefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So the Marcionites, we see the lengths that men go to. What we see the lengths that men go to, to create their own agenda. And they, the, the Marcionites created their own agenda, which was blatantly in, 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 in the face contrary to, the, to what the Bible said, to what the Scripture said, to what Luke, who was Paul's closest companion, had written concerning Paul. And, and we see that same thing over and over again today. Men with their own agenda just make up stuff and, and, and run with it. They make up their own tales, their own theories, and they run with them, even though those things are absolutely contrary to, 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 to the actual scriptures and the actual history. And they don't care because they only care about promoting their agenda. It happens all the time. It's even in Christian identity. And, and here we see Irenaeus describing this of, of the Marcionites and how wrong they were. They claimed to have these great secrets from Paul, and Luke says very plainly that Paul told his people that, that he brought Christianity to, he, he conveyed to them, he declared to them all of the counsel of God, which he had. There were no secrets. Take heed, and, and I'm back to Irenaeus now, take heed therefore both to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has placed you as bishops to rule the church of the Lord, which he has acquired for himself through his own blood. Then, referring to the evil teachers who would arise, he said, 
and, and Irenaeus is quoting Paul again, I know that after my departure shall grievous wolves come to you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw disciples away after them. I have not shunned, he says, to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Irenaeus is fortifying and re, um, re- reciting again what, what Paul told them. Thus did the apostles simply and without respect of persons deliver to all what they had themselves learned from the Lord. I'm using Irenaeus' terminology here. Thus does also Luke, without respect of persons, deliver to us what he had learned from them, and he has, satisfied him, he has testified himself, saying, even as they delivered them unto us, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Quoting Luke chapter 1, verse 2. To proceed with Irenaeus, book 3, chapter 14, part 3. Now, if any man sets Luke aside as one who did not know the truth, he will, by so acting, manifestly reject that gospel which he claims, of which he claims to be a disciple. In other words, Irenaeus is saying that if you reject Luke, you're not at all a Christian. For through him we have become acquainted with very many and important parts of the gospel. For instance, the generation... And, and we see how that word is used, right? But it means the birth. The generation of John, the history of Zacharias, the coming of the angel to Mary, the exclamation of Elizabeth, the descent of the angels to the shepherds, the words spoken by them, the testimony of Anna and of Simeon with regard to Christ, and that 12 years, and that 12 years of age, he was left behind at Jerusalem. Also, the baptism of John, the number of the Lord's years when he was baptized, and that this occurred in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And I would interject that Luke had a better emphasis on the importance of recording the gospel from a historical sense than the other apostles had, and and we will get into that later. And in his office of teacher, this is what he has to say to the rich. Woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation, and woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger, and ye who laugh now, for ye shall weep. And woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for, you, for so did your fathers to the false prophets. All things of the following kind we have known through Luke alone, and numerous actions of the Lord we have learned through him, which also all the evangelists Notice, the multitude of fishes which Peter's companions enclosed, when at the Lord's command they cast the nets, the woman who had suffered for 18 years and was healed on the Sabbath day, the man who had the dropsy, whom the Lord had made whole on the Sabbath, and how he did defend himself for having performed an act of healing on that day, how he taught his disciples not to aspire to the uppermost rooms, how we should invite the poor and the feeble, who cannot recompense us, the man who knocked during the night to obtain loaves, and did obtain them because of the urgency of his importunity. How, when our Lord was sitting at meat with a Pharisee, a woman that was a sinner kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment, with what the Lord said to Simon on her behalf concerning the two two debtors, also about the parable of that rich man who stored up goods, which he had accrued to him, 
to whom it was also said, And this night they shall demand thy soul from thee. Whose then shall those things be which you have prepared? And similar to this, that of the rich man who was clothed in purple and who fared sumptuously, and the indigent Lazarus, also the answer which he gave to his disciples when they said, Increase our faith. Also his conversation with Zacchaeus, the publican, also about the Pharisee and the publican, who were praying in the temple at the same time. Also the ten lepers, whom he cleansed in the way simultaneously. Also how he ordered the lame and the blind to be gathered to the wedding from the lanes and the streets. Also the parable of the judge who feared not God, whom the widow's importunity, importunity led to avenge her cause. And about the fig tree in the vineyard, which produced no fruit. There are also many other particulars to be found mentioned by Luke alone, which are made use of by both Marcion and Valentinus. And besides all these, he records what Christ said to his disciples in the way after the resurrection and how they recognized him in the breaking of bread. Now, that was lengthy, but it was necessary. And, and, and it's a good example, and, and I've seen this all the time in, in, in recent times. Here, Irenaeus has listed the many things which out of the four Gospels, we see recorded only in the Gospel of Luke. Note Irenaeus' general outlook, that where he says that through Luke, we have become acquainted with very many and important parts of the Gospel. He indicates that the Gospel is not any of the four accounts of it which we have, but rather the gospel transcends all four accounts. Each account is a gospel of one apostle or another, but each account is only one witness to the gospel. That's how Irenaeus sees it. That's the proper way it should be seen, which is the entire story, but which is not recorded in any one place by any one individual even the apostles. None of them have it complete, and that's ostensibly because God and no man can possibly be a witness to all things. As Paul said, we see through a glass darkly. As Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. Every man is a liar, because even though we do the best we can, we can't know everything. We're always going to omit or screw something up because of some fact unknown to us. It is further evident from reading Luke itself that the apostle did not mean to record anything unique, but rather he testifies that the purpose of recording his gospel was that, as he says, you may decide concerning the certainty of the accounts which you were taught, as he states in his opening paragraph where it is evident that all of Luke's accounts were already circulating in oral testimonies, and that he only chose to gather the records and record them for posterity. Therefore, we see some things which the other Gospels do not contain, and therefore we realize the reason for Luke's Gospel. If the other Gospel contained them, Luke probably wouldn't have had the right one. We see many things the other Gospels do contain, and Luke also receiving those accounts included them in his. Then, 
there are things in Matthew and Mark, which are not in Luke. And we can only imagine that Luke, not having an independent original source for those things on his own, did not include them. All of the critics who dispute the veracity of the Gospels because of the information they share or do not share usually do so by taking their writing out of any historical context and disputing it from a very childish viewpoint. If the same news bureau story appeared in ten newspapers and one historian later quoted it for one purpose and another historian still later quoted it for a similar purpose, can it be said that one of those historians copied from another? Various gospel accounts have been circulating from many witnesses, as Luke attests. And Luke collected what he could and compiled them into a single book, which is exactly what he told us that he had done in the opening of his gospel. If many of the stories appear with the same language in Matthew and in Mark, just like that same news bulletin can, can appear in two history books and, and be quoted and, and be in the same language, that doesn't mean that one historian was copying from another. If many of the stories appear with the same language in Matthew and Mark, it is only because they too had those same accounts. And many of the stories are similar, but many of them say the same thing in a different way. It also may be that they witnessed the same things that the other originators of those accounts had witnessed, and that accounts for differences in the language. The so-called higher critics are little but a den of dishonest, manipulative Jews. One more paragraph from Irenaeus from chapter 14, part 4. It follows then, as of course, that these men must either receive the rest of his narrative or else, and, and we're talking about Luke again, or else reject these parts also. For no persons of common sense can permit them to receive some things recounted by Luke as being true and to set others aside as if he had not known the truth. And if indeed Marcion's followers reject these, they will then possess no gospel. For curtailing that according to Luke, as I have already said, they boast in having the gospel in what remains. But the followers of Valentinus must give up their utterly vain talk, for they have taken from that gospel many occasions for their own speculations, to put an evil interpretation upon what has well, he has well said. If, on the other hand, they feel compelled to receive the remaining portions also, then by studying the perfect gospel and the doctrine of the apostles, they will find it necessary to repent that they may be saved from the danger to which they are exposed. Irenaeus here reasons that the followers of Marcion, claiming to have secrets from Paul which Luke did not have, by employing any part of Luke, they are actually contradicting themselves. And therefore, if they cling to their false claims, they are indeed refuting Luke on one hand, and they claim to be following Luke on another hand. The followers of Valentinus 
by inventing many tales, which they did, employing certain gospel stories which were attested to by Luke, also make themselves to be hypocrites. Since in their invention of tales, they deny much of those parts of Luke which they do not employ. They cannot pick and choose and have it both ways without being hypocritical. Those following Valentinus, according to Irenaeus in Book 1, Chapter 1 of his Against Heresies, contrived a complex theology based partly upon the Gospels and partly upon Greek philosophy, and also had a particular false gospel based on these ideas, which they called the Gospel of Judas, meaning Judas Iscariot. Now, whether this was the same as the recently discovered Gospel of Judas, what which we find in, in, in Gnostic literature now, I have not personally been even attempted to determine. Now, now what Marcion, what, what Irenaeus faults Marcion for and what he faults Valentinus for here is clinging to and using parts of a gospel and denying the rest of it. That makes one a hypocrite. You, you can't pick and choose which part of somebody's testimony you're going to believe and which part you're going to reject. That, that's simply patently unfair. You're, you're crediting a person on one hand, and you're denying that same person on another. That's absolutely hypocritical. That now, I have witnessed many modern critics of Paul do this same thing. They love to quote from Luke 10, 17 and 18. They love to, to quote, I saw Satan fall from, from, from heaven as lightning. And on the other hand, they deny the rest of Luke where Luke testifies of, of, of Paul, and they deny Paul. Well, well, that's hypocritical. They love to quote Luke 19.27. I have seen men, grown men, who were supposedly intelligent men, love to quote Luke 19.27. But those mine enemies, bring them hither and slay them before me. They love to quote that. And, and then they deny Paul of Tarsus, whom that same Luke testified from, testified of. How could you do that? How could you embrace half a man's words? And, and, and he's the only witness to those words. You won't find Luke 19.27 in the other Gospels. You won't find Luke 10.17 and 18 in the other Gospels. They're only examples. I've seen it today. Irenaeus is testifying to that same thing in the second century. It's hypocrisy. From Book 3, Chapter 15 of Irenaeus's, of Irenaeus's Against Heresies, the refutation of the Ebionites, who disparaged the authority of St. Paul from the writings of St. Luke, which must be received as a whole, exposure of the hypocrisy, deceit, and pride of the Gnostics. The apostles and their disciples knew and preached one God, the creator of the world. And I will quote, But again, we allege the same against those who do not recognize Paul as an apostle, that they should either reject the other words of the gospel, which we have come to know through Luke alone, meaning that if we reject Paul because Luke testified of Paul, we have to reject all of Luke. We really also have to reject two Peter also, right? 
and not make use of them, meaning those parts of Luke, or else if they do receive all these, they must necessarily admit also that testimony concerning Paul. When he, meaning Luke, tells us that the Lord spoke at first to him from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus Christ whom you persecute. That's in Acts chapters 9, 22, and 26. Irenaeus had no doubts that the same Luke who wrote the gospel also wrote the book of Acts. And then to Ananias, Ananias saying regarding him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name among the nations and kings and the children of Israel. That's a quote of Acts 9.15. For I will show him from this time how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Those, therefore, who do not accept of him as a teacher, who is chosen by God for this purpose, that he might boldly bear his name as being sent to the aforementioned nations, do despise the election of God, and separate themselves from the company of the apostles. For neither can they contend that Paul was no apostle when he was chosen for this purpose, nor can they prove Luke guilty of falsehood when he proclaims the truth to us with all diligence. It may be indeed that it was with this view that God set forth very many gospel truths through Luke's instrumentality, which all should esteem it necessary to use in order that all persons following his subsequent testimony, which treats upon the acts and the doctrine of the apostles, and holding the unadulterated rule of truth, may be saved. His testimony, therefore, is true, and the doctrine of the apostles is open and steadfast, holding nothing in reserve, nor did they teach one set of doctrines in private and another in public. And Irenaeus is addressing the Ebionites now, in addition to the followers of Marcion and the followers of Valentinus. The Ebionites rejected Paul. Rejecting Paul, one must also reject Luke, who both bore that same gospel attested to by Paul and who also testified of Paul. In order to realize why people reject Paul, the Ebionites are a good study. They are actually among the Judaizers, who Paul often criticized in his letters. The Ebionites, a word derived from the Hebrew Ebionim, meaning the poor or the poor ones, regarded Christ as the Messiah, but also insisted on the necessity of following Jewish religious law and rites, or Judean religious law and rites. The Ebionites used only one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew. They rejected all the others, which Irenaeus attests to. And they revered James and rejected Paul of Tarsus as an apostate from the law. And, and we see a hint of the Ebionites in Acts chapter 21, where James tells Paul how many thousands of people in Jerusalem still kept the law of Moses, even though he inferred that they had accepted Christ. We see the same attitude reflected in Paul's meeting with James and with the subsequent events leading to Paul's arrest as they are recorded in Acts chapter 21. It is evident that many of the Hebrews, as Paul explains at length in his letter to the Hebrews, misunderstood the Israelites' relationship to the law in the New Covenant. Many of them 
still do. Once we put all this together, once we put all this history together, we see the reason that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and Irenaeus attests also that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. What we see the reason for Paul's divisions with Judaizers in the book of Galatians and in other books. And we can show through the prophecy that Paul was on the right side of the will of God, that those rituals, those Hebrew rituals and sacrificial rites were to be done away with from the time of Christ. It, it's very clear in, in Daniel and in some, certain of the other prophecies. The Ebionites and many of the Judeans rejected that. There are a lot of Christians who, who want to, re, and, and, and identists who mean well, but they want to return us to the stage of the Ebionites, and that's not right either. And, and that can also be debated. Now, if Luke were a physician, as we have seen Irenaeus also quote Paul's words at Colossians 4.14, where we see him mention Luke, the beloved physician, it is highly unlikely that Luke was a Hebrew and almost certain that he was a Greek. Luke's very literate writing style assures that he had a good Greek education, as does his understanding in his work for the need for historical references in order to relate the circumstances in which his accounts were set. While only mentioned in Scripture twice, both of which are in Paul's letters, it is clear that Luke was, as Irenaeus describes, the companion of Paul through his several uses of the first-person plural pronoun we, describing the travels of Paul and those with him, for instance, in Acts chapter 16, verses 10 through 13, and, and that is the first occurrence of that. The traditions concerning Luke's being from Antioch, which we hear repeated often, are found no earlier than Eusebius, who wrote in the 4th century, kind of late, right? This is from Ecclesiastical History, Book 3, Chapter 4, and I quote, Luke, who was born at Antioch, was by profession a physician, being for the most part connected with Paul and familiarly acquainted with the rest of the apostles, left us in two inspired books the institutes of that spiritual healing art which he obtained from them. One of these was his gospel in which he testified that he recorded as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to him whom also he said he had in all things followed. The other was his Acts of the Apostles, which he composed, not from what he had heard from others, but from what he had seen himself. So, as Eusebius states, Luke received the Gospel accounts from others and compiled them into a single historical record. But he said that Luke actually witnessed the events that he recorded in Acts. Yet Luke's opening to the Acts, and, and Eusebius is only partially right as far as I'm concerned, Luke's opening to Acts reveals that he also received that account vicariously from others, since he only used the third person to describe those early events. Antioch was mentioned in Acts as early as Acts chapter 6, where it is implied that there were already a large number of Greek 
Christians. And there was much discourse between the apostles and the people of Antioch all the way through Acts chapter 15. Luke appears in this account with his use of the first person plural pronoun in Acts chapter 16. At what time Luke became involved is difficult to tell. However, it was certainly during the events recorded in these chapters, and most probably not any earlier than the events described in Acts chapters 6 and 7. Many modern sources, all of them influenced by the Jews, doubt that Luke wrote this gospel, somehow because they see conflicts between the Gospel of Luke, the Acts, and Paul's letters. All of these doubts, first planted by the mostly Jewish so-called German higher critics, that's another big lie of the Jews, that the so-called higher critics were really German, most of them were Jews, are based on the many false premises. All of these doubts are based on the many false premises of Judaism and Judeo-Christianity concerning the Bible. And not one of them has any merit whatsoever. The Jewish version of the Bible produces nothing but conflict because it is all based upon lies, false premises, and false assumptions concerning Jewish and true Hebrew-Israelite identity. It's also based on false definitions of words, such as ethnos, which means nation. There is no doubt, as we proceed through Luke, the Acts, and Paul's letters, that Luke wrote this gospel. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke was a constant and good companion of Paul, and that Paul's letters, which reference his gospel, are indeed a reflection of this gospel recorded by Luke. I am also convinced, I can't prove it, but I personally, as a reader and a student of Coin Greek, I'm convinced that Luke was the pen behind the epistle to the Hebrews. He wasn't the author. Paul was the author. Luke was the pen. He was the writer. The witnesses to the text of Luke are numerous. When the Christogenian New Testament was translated, readings of the following texts were primarily considered. The codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus from the 4th century, and the codices known as 0171, it doesn't have a name, right? 0171 is from the 3rd century, 0181 as the Nestle A. Land and most other scholars follow, numbers these manuscripts, 0181 from the 4th century, and 0182, which is from either the 4th or 5th century. The papyri testifying to Luke, there are others, but the earliest papyri that we know, and, and we know from archaeological providence when they were created, the papyri known as P4, P45, P69, and P75, all contain parts of Luke's Gospel. They are all from the 3rd century. P7 is from the 3rd or 4th century, and P82 is from the 4th and 5th century. So there are many ancient witnesses to the text of Luke. 
when I do my translations, I don't pay any attention to any manuscript which is later than the 6th century. That's my, my own rule of thumb, right? This, the, the fact that there are many ancient witnesses to Luke which have been located shows how widely the gospel was accepted. That's because the wider an ancient writing was accepted, the more copies were made of it, right? That's why we don't have a Greek Enoch anymore, because it was, um, it was rejected at the Council of Nicaea, so scribes stopped copying it. And um, there are, of course, many other hundreds of manuscripts of Luke dating to subsequent centuries. And with all that, this is Luke chapter 1. I'm sorry, my microphone gets in the way when I try to take a drink. Seeing that many have taken in hand to arrange a report concerning those matters fully ascertained among us, just as they who from the beginning, having been eyewitnesses and attendants of the word, transmitted them to us, it seemed good also to me, having closely followed from the first in all things accurately, to write to you methodically, most excellent lover of God, that you may decide concerning the certainty of the accounts which you were taught. The language of these first four verses of Luke, at least in the Greek, is very poetic and eloquent. My translation probably does not do it sufficient justice. Verse 1 seems to be a reference to the other Gospels, but it is not necessarily limited to the other Gospels as we know them today. It seems to imply that there were indeed more accounts of the Gospel or of different events which the Gospels now comprise than even those which we have now. John's Gospel was reportedly not written until a very late time as all the early Christian writers state, that he did not write his gospel until almost the time when he wrote the Revelation, about 90 to 92, 93 AD. Mark's gospel was also written at a late time. And the early testimonies say that Mark did not write his gospel, which was based upon Peter's accounts, until after the death of Peter. Matthew's gospel seems to have been the first and also seems to have been in circulation among the Christians of Palestine at an early time. In the second verse, Luke admits that he did not witness these things himself, but rather that they were transmitted to him by those who did witness them. It doesn't state how. It could have been orally. It could have been in writing. It, it seems that the accounts, as Luke admits, were circulating. In the third verse... Luke tells us that he followed from the first in all things accurately, which simply means that he carefully put all of the eyewitness accounts which he had in order from the beginning and made certain, as best he could, that they were accurate. Then he tells us that he did so in order to write them out methodically, which takes a little educated discipline, right? This seems to have been necessary because Luke had material which did not appear in Matthew's Gospel or in Mark's if that Gospel was complete by this time, and because Luke felt 
that he was able, from the material which he had, to make a gospel account that was historically accurate rather than one which, like Marx, was simply a collection of the events being retold. We also see in the third verse that Luke calls his reader most excellent lover of Yahweh, or God, where the King James Version has most excellent Theophilus, as if Theophilus was actually the name of a particular person. This is one of the dumbest misunderstandings in Christianity, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sorry. Luke does use the words kratiste theophile, which means most excellent theophilus, as he does also in the opening to the book of Acts. However, theophilus is not necessarily a proper name, and it belongs to no known individual. Now, in the Greek, if Theophilus was preceded with the article, that would indicate that it was a substantive and that it was a proper name. That is not the case here. It is not necessarily a proper name. It is probably not a proper name. Rather, it is apparent that Luke is using the word as a literary device, as it means, literally, lover of God, as an address for whoever is reading his writing at any given time, since Luke should expect no one but a lover of God to be reading his writing. It is no different than a modern writer using the term dear reader or dear Christian or something similar. That's how Luke uses the term. In the fourth verse, where Luke says that you may decide concerning the certainty of the accounts which you were taught. The King James Version reads that you might know. Yet the word epigonosco means to come to a decision to resolve or to decide, to acknowledge or to approve. It could be that Luke intended this to say that you may approve concerning the certainty of the accounts which you were taught. Where the King James Version has instructed the text is taught here, the verb katechio is more fully to sound a thing in one's ears, to teach by word of mouth. And it can mean in the passive to be informed. And so the reason, by using that particular verb, the reason for Luke's writing the gospel is manifest. He endeavored to fully explain and record what was already being orally transmitted. That's why he wrote the accounts. That's what he is explaining in these first four verses. The nature of the four Gospels and the circumstances which the earliest Christian writers related concerning their writing are absolutely agreeable. Mark's Gospel was not written to be a historical record, Mark's gospel is only meant to be a record of the events of the ministry and life of Christ as transmitted to Mark by Peter. And we learn in all the early Christian writers, as I had recounted here in my presentation on Mark's gospel, that Mark was requested, that he was badgered by certain people to write down 
the, the, the events that Peter had described to him. And that is why we have the Gospel of Mark. And therefore we see Mark's Gospel is really only a telling of events where he attempts to put them in chronological order, but there are no historical references to figures. There's no time frame set for the Gospel. That There's no attempt to put the, the um, events which were related into a period or an era as a, um, as a historical approach would require, which is what we see in Luke's gospel, right? And we shall. John's gospel was written very late, and it did not bother to retell much of the material which exists in the first three gospels. There are things which John mentioned from the ministry of Christ, which he must have felt that, that he had to include, but he, he retold very little of what we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Rather, John's writing being so late, he concentrated on the ministry of Christ alone, the words of Christ alone, especially on its final weeks. The, the final few weeks of the ministry of Christ take up nearly two-thirds of John's gospel. It is written mostly from an eyewitness perspective, which John, always being at the side of Christ, only he could have provided. Mark and John both begin their Gospels around the start of Christ's ministry when he was baptized in the Jordan. Matthew's Gospel is historical, and it recorded the events of the birth and life of Christ from a quite different perspective than that of Luke. Matthew focused at first on what was happening in Judea and Jerusalem in relation to the birth of Christ. And then, from an impersonal view, he describes some of the events concerning the life of Joseph and Mary with the infant Christ. Matthew's material may have come from many different sources, which can only be conjectured. Some of it may have come from Christ himself. Yet Matthew did not know Christ personally until Matthew was chosen as an apostle, which is described. I'm sorry, I'm making sure that my talk through my, my Skype is still running. Matthew was chosen as an apostle during the ministry of Christ, which is described in Matthew chapter 9 and also in Mark chapter 2. Like that of Matthew, Luke's gospel is also historical. But the history it offers from a very different perspective is the history of Mary herself. It's a personal record. Matthew's is not. Matthew's is an impersonal record. All of the things which Mary thought were important enough to keep, Mary held on to, whether in writing or, as Luke says, in her heart. And Luke tells us this himself in his second chapter, where he tells us twice that Mary kept all these things and kept all these sayings, and therefore it is certain that Mary was indeed the source for Luke's material early in his gospel.
Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, king of the Judeans, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abia, and with him a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. The divisions of the priests were called courses in the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles chapter 23 is one instance. These were first instituted by David, and then they were reinstituted at the beginning of the Second Temple period. Here the word is ephemeria, which in the New Testament appears only here in Luke chapter 1. The course of Abia was the eighth course for which see 1 Chronicles 24.10. So Luke is careful to include many details which show us and, and help to show us the veracity of the gospel. It, it's, the, you know, the more details the story has, uh, I mean, it's an adage, but, but the truer it rings. And Luke is consciously aware of that, and that's why he's making this account, to make a detailed historical account that people can basically verify. People of his time can verify. Maybe it might be difficult for us today, but people of his time did indeed verify it. And that's why we have it now. And that's why it was so highly esteemed. Many people are persuaded by this line alone, where it says that, that Elizabeth and Zechariah were Levites, basically. They're persuaded by this line alone that Mary, the mother of Christ, was of the tribe of Levi. Simply because her cousin was of the tribe of Levi. It is not necessarily so. It's not so at all. Elizabeth is called the Sugenes of Mary. That's the word translated cousin. A Sugenes is literally only one of the same race. It is a word with a wide meaning. Although it implies that she was probably a cousin of one degree or another, it doesn't necessarily indicate that they were of the same Fulace. A Fulace is a tribe. A Genes is a race, right? If Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary's to an aunt or a great aunt, that may easily have shown that they could be from two different tribes. They easily could have belonged to two different paternal tribes if they were cousins to their mother, to Mary's mother, both Judah and Levi. So the fact that Elizabeth was a daughter of Aaron proves nothing about Mary's paternal tribal heritage. And the people, you know, it says very clearly in many places in Scripture that Christ was sprung from the tribe of Judah. In fact, in the book of, in, in the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul states that Christ had no part of any tribe which made sacrifices at the altar, that he had no part in the tribe of Levi, which made the sacrifices at the altar, even though he himself had offered himself as a sacrifice. Paul is making an analogy in Hebrews, which also proves that Christ was not of the tribe of Levi or not associated with Levi in any way. Mary could not have been a Levite for Paul's words to be true. So Mary and Elizabeth must have been cousins on Mary's mother's side, and that would account for the, the, the um, ability of Elizabeth and Aaron to have been from the tribe of Levi. We can't um, make assertions that Mary was a Levite from this text because it simply can't be proven from this text. It, it's a silly assertion to make, and, and only somebody with an agenda, again, would cling to it. 
Now the name Zacharias and the names Elis- the name Elizabeth are, as Hebrew names always have deeper meanings. These names are quite providential. Zacharias is from a Hebrew name meaning Yahweh remembers, and Elizabeth, which was also the name of the wife of Aaron, the ha- the first high priest, right, the brother of Moses. Elisheba is the way it's spelled in the Old Testament. Elizabeth means God of the oath. So we have Zechariah, Yahweh remembers, and Elizabeth, God of the oath. And the names indicate to us that the nature in Hebrew, they always do, and Yahweh remembers his promises. And that's the message in the names of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 6. And they were both righteous before Yahweh, having walk, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of Yahweh blamelessly. Yet there was no child for them, because Elizabeth was sterile, and they were both advanced in their days. Sterility among women who were then chosen to fulfill the purpose of God, or who remain sterile to fulfill the purpose of God, like we see in Rachel, is a common theme in the Bible. It's seen in Sarah, it's seen in Rachel, it's seen in Manoah, the mother of Samson, it's seen in Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and it's seen here in Elizabeth. Verse 8, And it came to pass, upon his serving in the duty of his division, before Yahweh, his ephemeria, his course, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was assigned to be entering into the temple of Yahweh to burn incense. And that word which I translated assigned is actually lagcano, and that word is literally to obtain by lot. And it implies that the priests threw lots to see who would fulfill which of the duties in the temple. Verse 10 And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the time of the incense. And there appeared to him a messenger of Yahweh standing at the right side of the altar of the incense. And Zechariah, seeing it, was troubled, and fear fell upon him. The story implies that a supernatural event was occurring here. There should be little doubt. It was absolutely forbidden for anyone except a priest who was fulfilling specific duties to enter into this area of the temple, which very likely was kept by a guard in these days. It is a significant part of the Christian faith that there is more to the creation of God than what we perceive in these bodies and in this physical world. This was also a part of the ancient beliefs of all of the other branches of our Aryan race, in many of the myths and writings which we still have from them. While often the Hebrew or Greek words translated as angel can pertain to earthly messengers, earthly human messengers, and quite often they do, yet quite often they signify something other than that. One can see that the angels who visited Lot, described in Genesis chapter 19, appeared to men, but when they were threatened by the men of Sodom, They put forth their hand that they appeared to be men. But when they were threatened by the men of Sodom, who who were fornicators, right? They put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. 
And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both great and small, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. There are many other such episodes described in Scripture, which cannot be sufficiently explained by the presence of human messengers alone. I like to quote, to, to translate the Greek word angelos, which is angel, as messenger, because that's its literal interpretation. But leave it up to the reader to decide what sort of messenger he believes that this is. In this case, it, it's highly unlikely that it's a human messenger. It almost certainly has to be a supernatural messenger. And that's, that, that's what the text infers. Verse 13. And the messenger spoke to him, Fear not, Zacharias, since your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, shall produce a son for you, and you shall call his name Johannes, or John. And he will be a joy to you, and an exultation, and many shall rejoice upon his birth. For he shall be great before Yahweh, and wine and beer he shall not drink. And he shall be filled out of the Holy Spirit, or filled of the Holy Spirit, while yet in the womb of his mother. The name John, or Johannes, is also providential. Remember Zacharias, and, and, and Yahweh keeps his promises, and Elizabeth, the god of the oath. Well, Johannes means Yahweh is a gracious giver. And it appears in the King James Version Old Testament very often in, in Kings and Chronicles, it belongs to several men in Jeremiah, and it's Johanan. Here it infers the mercy of God being extended to the children of Israel. In the prophecy of Malachi concerning the coming messenger who is to go before the Christ, we see at Malachi 3.6 that it says, For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. In, the, in, in the, um, the name of John, we see the grace, the mercy of our God. Sekera is the word translated strong drink in the King James Version. It's a Hebrew word. It's usually interpreted to be a fermented liquor. The case that the word was used to describe beer is a good one, and it's presented in an article entitled, Beer and its Drinkers, an Ancient Near Eastern Love Story which appeared in Near Eastern Archaeology from the American Schools of Oriental Research in June 2004. The article's contention concerning Sekera seems plausible, even though the Greeks had other words for beer. Here we see a Hebrew word, which very likely could refer to what we know as beer. Well, which is from ancient Egypt, right? I mean, the Egyptians were, were, were brewing beer, and the Greeks called it barley wine, is what the Greeks... They, they used words, um, chrysae is barley and oinus is wine, and they used chrysae, oinus, barley wine, to describe beer. And that's mentioned by Strabo, Herodotus, and Xenophon. Verse 16, And many of the sons of Israel shall he turn to Yahweh their God, and he will go on before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the purpose of the just, to make ready a people prepared for Yahweh. The fathers, the children, the disobedient, all of these things can only refer to the children of the ancient Israelites. 
as we shall see several times in Luke, the gospel message can never be expanded to anyone outside of this context. When Paul was referring to my gospel, as he called it, or to the gospel of Christ, as he also called it, or the gospel of God, as he also called it, the gospel that Paul bore with him in his travels was Luke's gospel. When we examine Luke, and we will see this in several places, Luke is the Christian identity gospel. Luke is the only one of the three gospels, ex except for a couple of lines, like in Matthew fifteen twenty four, it says, I have come not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, well the churches love to twist that. And then they love to go to the Great Commission in Matthew, in, in Matthew tw chapter 28, and take that out of context and apply it to the wrong people. John 3.16, there's a lot of universalism in, in, in the church from John, and, and none of it is John's fault. John wasn't a universalist by no means, but they love to twist some of his words out of context and make them universal. We cannot learn from Matthew alone who the lost sheep of the house of Israel are. Luke, as we shall see when we get to Luke chapter 2 and the end of Luke chapter 1, Luke defined the gospel as belonging to the nations of the children of Israel of the ancient deportations of the dispersion of the children of Israel. And, and this is just the start of it. And Luke's quotes and, and the accounts which Luke recorded were carefully chosen and do fully infer that Christ in the New Testament came only for the children of Israel of the Old Testament. And many of the sons of Israel, he shall turn to Yahweh their God, nobody else, and he will go on before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the children, and the disobedient, the cast-off Israelites, to the purpose of the just, to make ready a people prepared for Yahweh. The last two chapters of Malachi, although they certainly have a dual fulfillment as Christ himself explicitly tells us in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 to 12, are a prophecy concerning John the Baptist, which Christ also tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, where he said, and if you will receive it, this is Elijah who was to come. And I will quote Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, in reference to John the Baptist, where from the King James Version it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So we see in Luke here that this is quoted in reference to John the Baptist who precedes Christ. Here is Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 12 from the King James Version. And we will see that this has a dual fulfillment. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias or Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall, meaning future tense, right? Elijah truly shall first come 
and restore all things, meaning all things between the children of God and God himself. As if we read Malachi and, and read it carefully. But I say unto you that Elijah has come already, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatever so they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. He means, again, to refer to John the Baptist. So Elijah had come, and Elijah was to come. So we see a fulfillment of Malachi in John the Baptist. We see a fulfillment of Malachi that we still await in the future. And I believe that that, and, and I believe, and so does Plifton Emmeheiser, that this message, this Christian Israel identity message, which turns the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, that is a manifestation of this fulfillment. I mean, we pray that it is, and, and we believe that this is a part of it. And Zechariah said to the messenger, By what shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in her days. Sarah also was advanced beyond the normal time of childbearing. We see that also of Elizabeth. Verse 19, And replying, the messenger said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands before Yahweh, and have been sent to speak to you and to bring good news of these things to you. And behold, you shall be silent and not able to speak until the day these things happen, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their time. Gabriel means warrior of God. The name appears elsewhere only in Daniel chapters 8 and 9. Yet from Daniel 9, it is certain that it refers to a certain individual, where it says in Daniel 9.21, Yeah, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the same time of the evening oblation. The phrase, to bring good news. I am Gabriel, who stands before Yahweh and had been sent to speak to you and to bring good news of these things to you. The phrase, to bring good news, is the, ba that is the basic meaning of the Greek word, Euagalizo. Euagalizo is the word which gives us the word evangelize and its derivatives. That word came right from Greek. Where it says, which shall be fulfilled in their time, kahiros may also mean in their proper time. Verse 21. And the people were expecting Zechariah and wondered at his being delayed in the temple. Then coming out, he was not able to speak to them. And they decided that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he was making signs to them, and remained mute. And it happened, as the days of his service were fulfilled. He departed for his house. And after those days, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived, and concealed herself five months, saying, that thusly is Yahweh done to me in the days which he looked to remove my reproach among men. The Hebrews considered, considered it a reproach not to have children. Where it says that he was making signs or motions, it is from the Greek word dianuo, to express one's meaning by a sign. It may have been written that he was indicating with signals. It shows that he was indeed a death mute, right? 
The word afieme is interesting here. He looked to remove my reproach among men. The word afieme means to send forth, to discharge, to let loose, to let fall, to send away. And it's interesting because the word is usually used in the King James. It's usually translated forgive because it's usually used of sin, right? To forgive sin, it's the same word, to remove her reproach from among men. Then in the sixth month, the messenger Gabriel, or the angel Gabriel, was sent by Yahweh to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The Codex Sinaiticus here has to a city of Judea named Nazareth. The Codex Bazai, which is from the 5th century, wants the words named Nazareth. It just has to a city of Galilee. I cite that just to show people some of the differences in the manuscripts. Most of them are quite insignificant. To a virgin promised in marriage to a man whose name was Joseph, from of the house of David, and the name of the virgin was Mariam. And that's important. It wasn't Mary, it was Mariam. Many suppose that the Greek word, parthenos, may signify young womanhood, apart from virginity, especially the, 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 the sick feminists of today, right? I've seen many of them assert this. Oh, she wasn't a virgin. She was a young maiden. This is simply not at all compatible with the word's usage. In a moral society, and and both the ancient Greco-Roman world and the medieval world, when the King James was translated, they were, for the most part, moral. Maidenhood is synonymous with virginity, just like a ship before her maiden voyage. That means that the ship hasn't sailed before. That's what a maiden voyage is, right? Well, it's the same with women. The Parthenon. And this is the word parsonos. It means virgin in Greek. The Parthenon is named after Athena. It's the temple of Athena, the virgin, on the citadel of Athens, which is named for the perpetually virgin goddess. Yes, the Greeks had a perpetually virgin goddess, which the Catholics later tried to um, make Mary into, right? Which does not agree with Scripture. She was a virgin when Christ was born, That doesn't mean she stayed one. Other proofs of this word's use in this limited sense to refer to a virgin and not simply to a young woman are far too numerous to list. The the Greek writings are replete with proofs that parsonos means virgin. It does not mean a young woman. To say young woman in Greek Without the implication of virginity is quite easy. The word kore or the word talis both refer to young women who aren't necessarily virgins. While there was no doubt many people in the ancient world with corrupt morals, certain liberals of today endeavored to construct norms in both modern and ancient societies from their own corrupt viewpoints. They represent a mere vocal minority who only trash the cultures which they attempt to redefine. The verb menestuo here is promised in marriage, in the past tense, in order to avoid any possible confusion. The King James has it as betrothed, right? In the modern vernacular, 
to say engaged would not be improper. Only what one in the ancient world is only truly married at the act of consummation, regardless of any ceremony or vow or promise. Only after consummation is a woman no longer considered a parthenos. It is then that she becomes a gune. For example, in Euripides, Trojan Women, a play, at line 1139, Hecuba, the captured queen of Troy and the mother of Hector, ponders the bedchamber where she'll become his bride in reference to the Greek hero Neopotalamus. From that example in literature and from many others, we can see that the Greeks envisioned marriage as happening in a bed, not at an altar. And so it was with the Hebrews. It was that way in the book of Genesis. When Jacob was brought his wife, he expected Rachel. He ended up married to Leah. He was married to Leah because he bedded Leah. Even though he was deceived, he understood that he was married to Leah. Right? Marriage happens in a bed. A parsonos is a virgin. A parsonos is not simply a young woman. Mary was a virgin. Mariam, the name, with the final stress on the A, the, the stress on the final A, it should be Mariam, is the usual spelling of the mother of Christ, of her name, in the oldest manuscripts of all the Gospels. It is not Mary. Some manuscripts have Maria in places with varying degrees of consistency. Like the name Zacharias, Elizabeth, and Johannes, which all have significant meanings in relation to God and his promises, the name Mariam also bears the mark of providence in how its meaning fits into the overall biblical story. Mariam is derived from Hebrew words which mean rebellious people, which the children of Israel certainly were. Therefore, Yahshua Christ, God incarnate, was born of a rebellious people, which is perfectly and literally true, and that was the meaning of his mother's name. Verse 28. And going in before her, the messenger said, Greetings, favored one. Yahweh is with you. Now the codices Alexandrinus, Ephraim, Siri, and Bezai, and the Textus Receptus all insert into the messenger's dialogue here at the end of the verse the exclamation, blessed are you among women. Now that exclamation does exist in the text. It belongs to the text at verse 42 of this chapter. The codexes Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Washingtonensis, which are older, do not have that exclamation, so you won't see it in the Christogonian New Testament. Verse 29, But upon this saying, she was confused and pondered what sort of greeting it could be. This is very different from the reading of the King James, where it says, And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And, and that's because the Texas Receptus again follows 
the Alexandrian manuscripts, and, and I'm following the older manuscripts. Verse 30, And the messenger said to her, Do not fear, Mariam, for you have found favor before Yahweh. Now behold, you shall conceive in the womb, and you shall beget a son, and you shall call his name Yahshua, and he shall be great, and he shall be called Son of the Highest. And Yahweh God shall give to him the throne of David his father, and he shall rule over the house of Jacob for the ages, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. But Mariam said to the messenger, How shall this be, since I have not known a man? And replying, the messenger said to her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. For which also the Holy, the Holy One being born shall be called the Son of Yahweh. And behold, Elizabeth your kinswoman, she has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who is called sterile, because not any word is impossible with Yahweh. And Maryam said, Behold the maidservant of Yahweh, May it be with me according to your word. And the messenger departed from her. While it can indeed be argued that it is evident that the promise of salvation through a virgin birth was extant among the Hebrews for some time, the first explicit promise of such appears early in the chapters of Isaiah. And I will repeat them here. I will say as an aside, that a virgin birth sounds incredible. But if you think about it, if you believe that God created Adam without a woman, then it's pretty easy to conceive that Mary indeed conceived from God. If God can create a whole man out of his word, which whatever that represents, then he can surely, with a little help, create a half a man, right? half of the DNA of Jesus Christ coming from his mother. Here is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Moreover, Yahweh spoke unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of Yahweh thy God. Ask it either in the depths or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt Yahweh. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore Yahweh himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord, or Yahweh, shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria, or probably even to the kingdom of Assyria. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, interpret this as a prophecy of Christ. And it should be. It says that the land will be bereft 
of both their kings, meaning that the kingdoms will be taken away before this virgin conceives and bears a son, right? Matthew chapter 1, 22 says, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of Yahweh by the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being, being interpreted is God with us. God is with us. Furthermore, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 8, again speaks of this promised child, and I quote, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, in order to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. Yahweh sent the word unto Jacob, and it is lighted upon Israel. So we see that the message of the angel is very much like the message in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, concerning this child. And we see again that this light, this word, was only sent for Jacob, and it was only sent for Israel. It is lighted upon Israel. The light which came into society, explained by the Gospel of John, was only prophesied to be for the children of Israel, not for anybody else. The circumstances of Isaiah chapter 7, the kings Ahaz and Pekah, and the others who are mentioned within that chapter, prove that the chapter was written no later than 732 B.C. While the text of the Septuagint differs in Isaiah chapter 9, the Masoretic version is, in this instance, fully supported by the virgin, by the virgin, I got virgins on my mind, right? By the version found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, the text of Isaiah 7.14 is not disputed by the Septuagint, where it says, Therefore Yahweh himself shall give you a sign, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That means, and they shall that they shall say of him, God is with us, which is the way Matthew can be translated. Concerning the virgin birth, there are myriads of Jewish scoffers, deceived zeitgeist fanatics, and assorted others who seek to demean the basic tenets of Christianity by claiming that so many other accounts had existed first, and that therefore Christianity merely borrowed this idea from elsewhere. The claim has absolutely no merit whatsoever. And I'm going to talk about a few of those claims. The Krishna story is one of the most often cited examples for sources of Christian ideas by the critics of Christianity. Many elements of the Krishna story, as it is known today, read very much like certain accounts in the Gospels. However, none of these elements, not one of them, can be proven to have existed before the time of Christ. Not one. There is not one shred of archaeological documentary evidence to prove that they did exist. 
that evidence of any of the stories which the Vedas tell may have existed before the time of Christ is no proof whatsoever that the stories of Krishna as they are now known had existed at that time. The age of the Vedas is pushed back further and further in time. Originally, they were estimated to be from the 3rd or 4th centuries A.D., as many Western scholars initially and more correctly believed, and they've been pushed back to 1500 B.C. to 3100 B.C., and now to as early as 5000 B.C. Any claim for a Krishna, any claim for a Vedic civilization as they exist in those stories today, which is dated before the time of Christ, is based solely upon religious fervor or a desire to give Hinduism unwarranted credit, and it is not based upon fact. Elements of the Vedas themselves stem from Western traditions and not from anything indigenous to India. The Kushites were in India before 1500 B.C. The Persians had a presence in India. The Saka and the Masagete, Scythians, occupied Sogdiana and Bactria and the Jakartas River Valley from the 7th century B.C. In the 3rd century B.C., Alexander the Great left strings of forts and Greek soldiers from Mesopotamia to the Indus River. All of these influences contributed to the later religions of India. Today's Indians claim that the stories belong to them. However, if the advanced culture of the Vedas belong to today's Indians, how is it that today's Indians live in squalor and would have nothing outside of modern Western intervention? They probably wouldn't even exist. The Krishna stories as we now know them are clearly corruptions of the gospel received as it spread in early times. The Vedas, they may reflect writings that are old, they may reflect much wisdom, but they cannot be dated simply from internal evidence. Just because somebody writes a story that claims to be ancient doesn't mean that it is indeed ancient. Islamic parallels and the stories of Sufism, which mention Muslims, are used in the same manner. None of these have any credibility, since Islam, by its content and its history, is clearly a contrivance which was made in the 6th century AD. Islam is based in large part upon Hebrew literature, and it's an invention of the Jews and Jewish influences which has no business at all in any historical debate concerning Christianity. Elements of Buddhism are also cited to discredit Christianity and the ideas of this virgin birth of Christ. However, Buddhism was initially a development of the Saka, and the Saka were those Cimmerians, the Cymri of the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites. Buddhism cannot honestly be dated before the 5th century B.C. Buddhism did not exist before Isaiah wrote Isaiah 7.32, and it is only natural that the Hebrews from which it sprang had indeed retained elements of their original religion. Therefore, there is not one, furthermore, I'm sorry, furthermore, there is not one shred of archaeological documentary evidence which contain any claims of a virgin birth for Buddha 
before the time of Christ, and even Buddhist scholars have admitted that the early accounts of the birth of Buddha contain no such claims as a virgin birth. These are lies invented by these Jew freaks that made this damned movie. Invented stories concerning Semiramis and Tammuz are also contrived in order to discredit Christianity. However, none of this is known in the early inscriptions, where the two are never connected. There's no connection between Semiramis and Tammuz in any, or, uh, any of thousands of early Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian inscriptions which mention either Semiramis or Tammuz. Semiramis was a historical figure. She was an Assyrian queen of the 9th century. Her name was Shamuramat. Remembered by the Greeks as Semiramis, she was connected to the early stories of Assyrian conquest, and she later became an idol. And later on, many myths being developed around her image, the Greeks recorded a lot of them. Yet no virgin birth myth was repeated concerning her by the Greeks before the time of Christ, even though Strabo and Diodorus Siculus and Herodotus all talked about Semiramis. Tammuz, in the ancient Mesopotamian inscriptions, stuff that the Jews didn't make up, stuff that was actually dug out of the ground, Tammuz was a minor god. He was a one-time consort of Ishtar, who was, as the myths say, cast into the underworld. He wasn't born of a virgin birth. The ancient Akkadian creation epic describes the birth of Marduk, the chief idol in the Assyrian pantheon, in this way, and I quote, In the holy heart of Apsu was Marduk created. He who begot him was Yah, his father. That's from ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, Princeton University Press, James Pritchard, editor, published 1969, page 62, column 1. The Assyrians, who were Shemites as well as the Hebrews, certainly had myths which were in many respects similar to the accounts of the Hebrew Bible. I would expect them to. And the creation of Marduk sounds more like an elaboration of the creation of Adam than it does the birth of Christ. There's no virgin involved in the creation of Marduk. The similarities of Zoroastrianism and Mithraism to Hebrew Christianity are easily accounted for in the fact that these religions did not develop until after the deportations of the Israelites. Zoroaster didn't write anything before the 6th century BC, and they were a part of the dissemination of Hebrew beliefs throughout the Near East. Originally among the racially homogenous peoples of the Medes, Assyrians, and Persians. The Magi, for instance, were a priesthood among the Medes, the Persians, and the Parthians, and they were expectant of the Hebrew Messiah. The historian Josephus, who was by no means a Christian, along with the archaeological records, proves the connections between the Parthians in ancient Israel, the Magi, were a priesthood among the Parthians. Zoroastrianism and Mithraism do have similarities to 
the accounts in the Hebrew Bible. There's no doubt. The basis for Zoroastrianism is very, very close to many of the themes of the Hebrew Bible. There is no doubt. But these are cognate people. They should have similar myths. If they didn't have similar myths, then there would be a problem. Supposedly, and, and this is the biggest lie in Zeitgeist. This is a, the biggest lie of the critics of Christianity in the virgin birth. Supposedly, there is an Egyptian myth that Horus was the son of Isis, who was a virgin when she bore him. That is a blatant, outright lie. Anybody that repeat, any Jew that repeats that is a liar. On page 4 of ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, where the Egyptian creation myths are published, in column 1 we may read, and I quote, Who is he? As for yesterday, that is Osiris. As for tomorrow, that is Ray, on that day in which the enemies of the All-Lord are annihilated, and his son, Horus, is made the ruler. In column two, we see, so Geb gave his entire inheritance to Horus, that is, the son of his son, his firstborn. Horus is called the son of Osiris in many other places in the Egyptian inscriptions. The story is, in the Egyptian inscriptions, that Isis cut up Osiris into many different pieces and scattered them. Later on, all those pieces were connected, collected, except his penis. So Isis fashioned for Horus a new penis, and cohabitating with him, Horus was born, after she fashioned for Osiris a new penis. That's the Greek, that's the Egyptian story. That's the myth found in the original Egyptian records. That does not mean that Isis was a virgin and that Horus was born of a virgin birth. That is a blatant lie. It's, it, it's, a, it's a contrivance of the Jews who seek to discredit Christianity in the eyes of an unsuspecting public, of an ignorant public, because they haven't read the foundational documents of our race. But we don't learn these things in school anymore. We don't learn about Persians and Medes and Zoroaster and Magi and, and, and the Egyptian myths in school anymore. Very few people read these things. And once the Jew is able to get a movie like Zeitgeist out in front of hundreds of millions of ignorant people, the Jew is happy by casting a net to deceive whoever he can. Zeitgeist is a lie. It's a collection of lies. Any Christian who follows a Jew is a fool. Why is it that Christians that why is it that Jews can come into a Christian society and they're allowed to create such lies? And then Christians who seek to chastise those Jews, the Christians are labeled as evil. The real question should ask should be asked. The real question that should be asked is, when shall the pogroms begin? They are long overdue. Thank you for listening tonight. Praise Yahweh. Next week I'll pick up where I left off. Well, I'll pick up with Luke chapter 1, verse 30, 
and, and recover some of that material. Good night.